today on Wine Access Unfiltered. Will you go the drive-in route like your colleague, Burt Kreischer? No. Not going to do it. (laughs) I have more and more of my friends are doing it. Gaffigan's doing it too. And I'm just like, I can't perform for cars. I can't. Well, welcome everyone to the Wine Access Unfiltered Podcast. I am your host, Amanda McCrossin. I am here with Vanessa Conlin. It's so good to see your virtual face as always. Great to see you too. And I'm so excited about today. We are such comedy nerds and I'm so excited to have truly one of my favorite comedians with us today, Tom Papa. He has a number of Netflix specials, or I guess I should say just hour-long specials. Now we just call them Netflix specials because that's where they live. But he's been in the game for a long enough time where they actually were not always on Netflix. Um, And interestingly, toured with Jerry Seinfeld, got his start in New York, is a native uh, New Jersey guy, but kind of like hangs out in LA and loves wine now. And I just love listening to him. He kind of can make anything funny. He's one of those guys that that just like the day-to-day mundane stuff, he can just break down and make it hilarious. I think he's one of those guys that you hear and you're like, oh yeah, I know that guy. And he's been in so many things has a prolific comedy career, and then also has a number of podcasts and radio shows himself, notably the newest of which is called Breaking Bread, which I think is very interesting because he's a comedian that really noticed that the great conversations were happening around the table and literally over breaking bread. Um, So the topics of conversation are, are a little bit more food focused. And he literally bakes bread like he's been doing this for a long time. So I feel like I need to ask him about this because... I love food. I know you love food. You know, every restaurant in every city, it's truly impressive. (laughs) But what I don't like is measuring things and having to be really precise. So I want to ask him about this because he's so creative, obviously. Um, So I'm just curious, like what that fulfills for him, the the whole baking obsession. I think during COVID, everyone or the initial quarantine, everyone sort of had bread fever. And you probably remember the shortage of yeast that happened because people were so excited about it. It's all I saw on Instagram, but I have to say I did not jump on that bandwagon. Although I did jump on just opening every bottle in my cellar (laughs) (laughs) that I had been holding. (laughs) I think that's the better bandwagon to have jumped on. But he is someone that loves things like Barolo. He loves uh, Italian and European wines. I think we're going to have a lot of fun not only discussing comedy and baking bread, but we're definitely going to have a great conversation about wine today. And I'm really curious how he got down that path, because really all we know right now is that he loves European wines. And I'm curious how he got there. So we did select knowing that two European wines, um, maybe we can say that they're both from Italy, one more classic and maybe one that he's not, maybe more of like an experimental wine today, which I I, I feel like that was a good way to go. Totally. Well, we sort of very different regions and uh, I can't wait to talk them through. I think this is going to be so much fun. I've got wine, you've got wine and let's drink. Welcome to the show, Tom. Comedian Tom Papa and also podcaster extraordinaire because you've got quite the reputation on podcasts as well. So uh, thanks. Thanks for having me. We were just talking about Italian wine uh, before the before the podcast and changing laws. Uh, you are a fan of Italian wine. You love Barolo, which is like a song to any sommelier's ear who loves. Usually, if you talk to any sommelier, they'll say they love Riesling or Champagne or Italian wine. And you are clearly a lover of of the fun stuff from Italy. So what's up with that? Yeah, I well, I am Italian. I grew up Italian, and. Um... 
So I, I just have that kind of, anytime I hear Italian anything from wine to shoes to cheese, I'm just like, it's probably better. <laughs> <laughs> My grandmother would have said that was better. So yeah, so then when I started, when I got a little older and started drinking wine, I started just kind of leaning towards it. And it was interesting. I was, in the beginning, I was drinking a lot of California reds and... I was always like, I had a hard time parsing out what the differences were with a lot of them, but there was like this kind of similarity. When I started to discover like, oh, there's these smaller wineries in Europe that uh, you should be exploring. I started trying, trying them out and I was like, oh yeah, these Californias, they all kind of have this kind of bigness to them. They kind of all have this, uh, but these are kind of these European ones, they're hard to pin down. They're a little wily. I was like, there's, they're subtle. <laughs> there was something. And then, then I started just getting into Italians and then the Barolo in that kind of wily, I guess the word is complex or just kind of hard to pin yeah. down. The Barolos were kind of like, oh, I remember the first time I had it, I was like, I don't know, this is kind of light. I don't know why people are saying so many great things about Barolo. And then after like four sips, you're like, I think I'm starting to realize why everybody really likes Barolos. <laughs> <laughs> and then I just kept drinking more of them and discovering more of them. And I had a good friend of mine that loves them who was kind of guiding me along. And I was like, all right, I'm starting this. It is a little more complex in a way. It is a little more subtle. And that mm -hmm. kind of got me excited, not just for Barolos, but for all wines in that way. Yeah, no, I think that makes perfect sense. You're speaking like a like a wine pro. Ooh. There is, I mean, there's definitely some bigger wines in Italy, but um especially when you get to some of those more uh, classic European regions like Barolo, you get into the territory of, of nuance and complexity and things that are not as overstated as you might find in a warmer climate region like California. Right, right. Yeah, it's interesting. And then, and, and then I always go through this where I'm like, okay, so I'm turned on by these Barolos. These are really good. Then I always get this kind of, okay, so now am I just a a sucker for Barolo, so no, everything Barolo, I think, is just going to be, you know what I mean? Well, there are those that exist. Yeah, right, right. And I, that you always, you don't want to be dating a fraud. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's always like, you, you never want to be had, right? You want to be, just because it says Barolo on it. Yeah. You want to be, have your eyes and taste buds open enough where you're you're not just sold on the name. Yeah. And there's always a friend in this situation that like sort of takes you down that path. As you mentioned, was this a friend who was in the wine industry or is this a friend from other places? No, this was, um, I'll tell his name's Chris Thiele, who is this great musician. And he was the host mm. of Live From Here, which was Prairie Home Companion, formerly Prairie Home Companion. Oh, cool. He, yeah. he took it over and it became Live From Here. And he's a great guy, really brilliant mind and real lover of wine. And mm. I came on for the spoken word portion of the show as a comedian, and he was the musician. And we had this kind of common bond. The first time we met, we met in L.A. and we're drinking uh, wines at um, uh, Moza. Oh, yeah. Which is, this, yeah, it's just a great place. And they have a, yeah, and they've got a- Na Nancy Silverton. Yeah, and great wine list and- a lot of smaller uh, wineries and stuff. And he was just so excited and he was popping off and he was like, Barolo, Barolo, Barolo. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, for, for like a year, the first year that we were working together, anytime I was in a wine shop looking for a good Barolo for the night, I would 
send him a picture. And then he just, I mean, like a sommelier would just go off. Like you had to stop him. Like, and then, <laughs> and so it was really a lot of fun. But like, it, I don't retain it all. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm. There's certain ones that you kind of will recognize, but he just seemed to have this mathematical musician head where he classifies it, it's in his head and it's there forever. And I'm like, that one was nice. <laughs> it's more of <laughs> goes by feel and texting him. Some people are like that. You know, they can just have this kind of like Rolodex in their brain and keep track of it. But thank goodness there's this thing called the internet these days. So if you forget or you don't know a producer, you can always Google it, which has has served me well at times. <laughs> it's so funny. I'm so glad you say that because I always feel like I've got to do it like kind of sneaky on the side, like check an app like, out. On oh, my <laughs> like I'm getting a text from my kids. Yeah, exactly. But we really shouldn't be expected to know all of it. No, for sure. Well, you mentioned uh, Mozart and I did a little digging, not that I needed to do much digging because all it takes is scrolling through about 0.5 seconds, your Instagram to see that you are a lover of bread baking, which is also very clear from the name of your podcast breaking bread. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm curious how that started because you're a comedian, but you've started this podcast really around the concept that great conversation happens at the table. So I guess it's twofold. How did you start breaking bread and how's the podcast going and flowing into the, the notion of baking bread? Yeah, it really, it really opened up this whole other aspect of my life in a very natural way. I had a friend that was baking sourdough bread and we were writing on this TV show together. And during the break, he was telling me about this sourdough starter and how it's just flour and water. It's this living organism that you have to keep feeding. And and it just was like the science fiction tale of, of bread baking. <laughs> and I told my family, my two daughters and my wife at dinner. And for Christmas, my daughter got a, a sourdough starter started for me. She secretly put some flour and, wow. and water together and was hiding it in the house for like three weeks. And then Christmas gave it to me. And uh, I always say it was my best acting was pretending that getting a bowl of goo was a great present. <laughs> like, oh, <laughs> thanks. This is really great. But it ended up being an amazing gift because I started using it and I started baking bread off of my friend Max's uh, advice. And I just got hooked I don't know why, but it was the process fit me very well. The timing of it fit me well. Uh, and of course, being able to eat it, <laughs> which I love eating. <laughs> that was a great thing. If you're going to get a hobby, I always say that you should get one that you can eat. And I got really hooked in it on it and then started baking like crazy. And I got a starter from Max. So I had these two starters going and I just started you know, similar to, to your experience, I'm sure with wine, you start going down that path. Yes. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, a year later, I look over and there's just a stack of books all about bread. And there's all of these tabs <laughs> on my, on my uh, browser, all about bread baking. And I just got really, really into it. And the Food Network heard that when I was going out on tour as a comedian, I was visiting bakers. I was just trying to f learn and see what flour they had and all that. So the Food Network approached me for um, a show based on that. Actually, before that, this is funny. Uh, before that, I just started with my starter and stuff. And I talked about it on Joe Rogan's podcast. And the New York Times off of that 
contacted me and said, we're doing a, sh- a, a story on sourdough starters. Can we come to your house and interview you and stuff? And I was like, yeah, sure. I'd only been doing it for maybe eight months. And there's a picture of me in the New York Times food section holding my starter. <laughs> and all my friends from New York, I'm in LA, all my friends from New York who know me just as a comedian were like, what's going on out there? <laughs> Why are you in the food section <laughs> talking about baking bread? So between that and then the Food Network catching wind of it, I started this show called Baked where I was traveling around visiting bakers and shining a light on all these good people that are baking bread out there and pastries and all these people that are passionate about food. And I'm telling you, it just opened up this great like little avenue, you know, in show business, you kind of, you say yes to a lot of things and you end up being in shows and stuff just because people offer it to you. But this path was just because I was passionate about celebrating life, drinking, eating, hosting. And I think purely from that passion, the show business end of it started kind of coming in, ended up with the Food Network show, started this podcast, Breaking Bread, and would go on Rogan and I would always bring bread. And that just was such a natural part of my life that I just loved to do. We always have people at the house. We're always hosting. We're always doing all that stuff that I'm just so happy that I just have this now space where I'm just purely doing what I love and it carry over into the comedy show business side. Totally. Yeah. I And I think it's it's the gift that keeps on giving because I've heard bread bakers often have too much bread and can give other people their bread. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I constantly, it's so funny, especially now during the pandemic, I find myself making bread deliveries <laughs> because I'm baking so much and there's not much traffic in LA so I can get around really easily. So I'm constantly dropping bread off at comedians and different friends' homes and I have like my own bags. It's it's literally becoming becoming a thing. So I have a question about baking because I love cooking, but I, I do not like to follow recipes and I don't like to measure. Right. Which obviously you have to if you're going to bake. Yeah. So... Do you think it's like a way to have some control over things to have to be so precise? Because I would think you're such a creative person, you know, but is this like your this grounds you in some way? Uh, no, you know, it's interesting. I'm more like you than a baker. I like to cook and I like to just kind of go by feel. And baking bread is kind of the crossover. It's like if once we start getting into pastries and cakes and stuff, I'm probably out. I'm not going to. Like I'll do bagels and yeah, I I can't get to that. That's so precise, but there's, there is a little closer to cooking in baking bread. And there's this great baker up in uh, Ojai, Kate's bread, uh, Kate Pepper, and she doesn't go by recipes at all. It's all feel. And when I first Mm. saw her on Instagram, I was like, oh, this is, this is more like I identify with that. She's just going by feel and knowing how much water is in that dough. And you do have to stick to a schedule. There's timing. The only time I really mess up bread is when I try and rush it. You can't do that. So there's a little more precision than cooking, but I bet you would find that it would suit you. Maybe I should give it a shot then, because I think I think I was scarred by a pastry class. Someone. (laughs) Yeah, that's those those people are nuts. (laughs) Oh, no, no, it's crazy. Someone bought me as a gift this 
class on laminated dough, which I didn't even know what that is yeah. until I got there. But it's like croissant, you know, and like the amount of like rolling. Oh, the sheets. Over yeah. And, oh, my God. No. It was like the worst day of my life. No, <laughs> I know. I did. <laughs> I did for the Food Network. We did uh, Bien Cui in Brooklyn. Uh, this is great baker. I forget his name. He's just great. And he showed me how he makes croissants. And in the middle of it, he has a big sheeting machine that actually sheets out the butter and the and the the dough. I was like, this is a thing that I should just buy. This is not, <laughs> I'm not going to make these. <laughs> yeah. I'll bake bread. I'll try baguettes. Yeah. There's certain things like, no, I don't have to try and make all of this stuff. <laughs> I mean, those people are so elegant and precise and patient. I have so much, uh, so much respect, but it, exactly what you said, like there are certain things I will just pay for. And a croissant is one of those I will, I will happily pay for. I don't know why this was so like naive or I, it's maybe I never even thought about it, but every time I roll into like a coffee shop or a bakery and there's just this display case filled with stuff that's always there and always waiting for me. It wasn't until I started visiting all these bakers that I realized how much work goes into filling all these cases. Like that there are people baking this stuff literally around the clock so that you could just walk in and be like, no, I'll take that scone. <laughs> you know, like yeah. it's these people work really, really hard. And as much as I love baking, I am an at-home baker. And, and I think like, well, especially now when we're home and everyone's kind of reevaluating their life, it's like, what if I did open up like a small bake shop? People really love my bread. Like what if I were to do that? It is so much harder than comedy. <laughs> <laughs> so do you have a, a regimen right now for baking bread? Is there like a day of the week or, you know, a number of times per month that, that you do this? No, I just know that I have to be home for about four days. That was my, my rule when I was on the road a lot. And even now, like, Popping out like today, I'm like out doing the podcast here for Breaking Bread and seeing you folks. And so I knew I shouldn't feed the starter and get it ready for this morning because then by the time I put it into the dough, I'm going to be gone all afternoon. It's shot. I can't do it. It's not going to work. So like my whole life is literally built around. Yeah. The bread thing is dictates where I'm going to go and when I'm going to do stuff. It sounds kind of like the way people talk about having children. Yes. <laughs> it dictates what you can do and when. That's right. Yeah. When the kids are little and you're like, I can't get a shower until <laughs> like until three o'clock because it just there was no window for it. It's very similar to that. Now that I'm home a lot more because we're, you know, there's not that many live performances going on. I am getting like ahead of it. Like I'm just baking too much bread. So I'm trying to get it down to two bakes a week, which is four loaves a week. And when people do my podcast, I always give them bread. It's always with the idea also of who am I baking this for? Like I just had my friend Kira Sultanovich on the podcast. So I knew I was going to bring her bread. And then I have another comedian, Joe Coy, who was on my podcast earlier. And he's doing some editing for me. So I'm going to drop, he loves my bread. So I'm going to drop bread off at him on the way home. So I'm always kind of like doing the math, but two bakes a week, four loaves seems like the good spot. I don't know why, but I, now I'm going to try and make ciabatta and I know I'm going to mess <laughs> up for the next couple of months. So, uh, so I might be turning it up a little bit more if I can experiment. 
In your comedian circle of friends, who is the most grateful or excited to get loaves of bread from you? Like, who's texting you? Well, I, Rogan was a big part because he was so, uh, he just had to move his studios and do all this stuff. But he was such a fan of it. Really? Because he was so pure protein. He was on like a keto diet when I met him. <laughs> he was so all, the carbs were the enemy. And then I roll in with these loaves of bread. <laughs> I think it was it was like giving a starving man his first meal. <laughs> I don't think the bread was even that mind blowing, but for him, uh-uh. just he's so grateful to get it. And his big thing is he loves hunting, and he never buys meat. It's always like from you know something that he's actually hunted and has respect for it. And so the only meat I don't eat that much meat. There's my whole family is vegetarian, so the only meat I'll eat is his. So we have this kind of barter system kind of a combo. Okay. That relationship has become really special. But then I also have uh, Fortune Feemster, who I do my Sirius XM show with. She loves the bread. Yeah. And so I'm always dropping it off there. I mean, uh, there hasn't been one person who I haven't dropped off bread who don't ask for it. Like they all kind of subtly want more. Yeah. But there have been a couple of people who it's gotten to a point where they don't praise it enough. And I'm like, I don't think they're worthy. <laughs> they're not getting a second loaf. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what about in your in your circle of comedian friends? What about wine? Are there certain comedians that you really like to crack open bottles with? Wow. I just took a sip of that Sicilian wine. Yes. At Eroso. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. My family is from uh, Sicily. Papa is from Palermo. Oh, okay. So I'm always trying to like figure out what's a good Sicilian wine. This one's nice. Yeah. You like it. The Benantini. Yeah. Great producer. Norello Mascalese is the variety. Can almost be Pinot Noir-like in some in some ways. Mm-hmm. But like great acidity, often from Sicily, all that like great volcanic soil, get like a smoky minerality to it. But I'm always hesitant to use this word, especially like around the American palate, but like almost like an herbal medicinal note to it. Mm-hmm which I really enjoy, but I know a lot of sort of the American palate, the like kind of Coca-Cola palate, they don't, those are like scary terms, but I find it like super intriguing. Is it so interesting? You know, I write a lot and uh, mm-hmm. it's so interesting when somebody says something and it makes perfect sense and you don't know why. I mean, it's kind of like where curse words came from. Yeah. Those words just mean exactly what they mean. <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, how'd you say it? Herbal medicinal? Yes. Yeah. That made perfect sense as I was taking the sip. Yeah. Almost like, you know, do you like Amaro? What's Amaro? Like Fernet Branca. Right. It's like a digestive, right? It's like, it's, but it's like lots of different mix of herbs. Yeah. Um, fortified, but it's, you know, great like after dinner to settle your stomach. But I get some of those themes. Obviously, this is not fortified or, you know, some of the, that same kind of medicinal note to it. I find it in both in Amaro and in Norello Muscalese. Yeah. It was always one of my markers when I was blind tasting. Right, right, right. It's got this like nice light smokiness to it. It's not like this overpowering smoky. Yeah. But I like that. I, I tend to, I like um, Chateau de Pops also because they kind of have that little spice box to it, you know, that yeah. oh, earthy. Yeah. Totally. I, people sometimes call it garrigue, this sort of like mix of, you know, dried herbs and lavender and yeah. you know, just kind of like all, you know, meshed up together like fennel seed and but exactly what you're saying this this um it, there's like a savoriness to it it's a non-fruit note to it yeah yeah it's really uh intriguing yeah really good this is nice oh good no for for comedians um 
I don't know. I mean, Chris Thiele was was the guy for sure. Like he was somebody like like you're saying, like you're hesitant to describe wines to certain people because it's it's almost like too much. But then when you find people that speak your language, yeah. you could just spend all night talking like that because it's making sense, right? It has that thing. And like drinking with Chris was definitely that way. It was nice. You were both kind of like pushing each other further to enjoy it even more. Do you like to talk about wine like in a sort of geeky way like you would with him? Or do you like to just kind of kick back and relax a bit? Uh, no, I, I like to try and understand why I'm enjoying it. I think this is a kind of the way I've been heading. Like, I think the older you get, the more you appreciate things in a way. Like if I'm going to drink a scotch or if I'm going to have a meal that's maybe more fatty or dessert that's more decadent, like I want it to be quality. I don't want to spend my capital on stuff that's trashy. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> Really? Like, I don't like when you're younger, like my daughter just went to college and it's just like, I know where her head's at. It's like, <laughs> give me pizza, the cheapest beer we can find. Just like, it's about quantity and we're going to feel okay. There's no price to pay for these decadent behaviors. There's a price to pay the older you get. It's like, you know, you're not going to sleep as well, or you're going to, you have stuff to do in the next day. And it's like, I want them to be good moments. I want them to be really I, I want it to be worthwhile. So when I find people that are equally as into it, there's a um, director of the Montreal Comedy Festival, my friend Bruce, and he is just, he loves wine. And I've been going up to the Montreal Comedy Festival for, I don't know, almost 20 years now. And I wasn't even into wine when I first met him. And he had a wine cellar and he would be kind of like wanting to talk about, like he loved it. And I was like, yeah, this is great. And then over the years, he's one of the most favorite people I like hanging out with when I'm drinking wine, because now I understand the language that he's speaking. Yeah. So yeah, I like to kick back, but it's funny when you put it that way, because when I do hang out, like say we're at a party, like a barbecue or something, and someone just opens some wine and everyone's just kind of drinking, you know, no one's really that into wine. Mm -hmm. I just kind of drink it without even questioning what I'm drinking. You know, it's just kind of like, yeah, whatever. And then when you're around people that really love it, you're like, why do they love it? What is going on here? What is this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and you take a little bit, take a little pause. Well, and I think as a wine professional, there's always that reticence to say anything about wine that may be deemed too geeky. Mm -hmm. So I feel like I'm always sort of, and Vanessa, you can probably speak to this too. I feel like I'm always like caught in the crosshairs with people who are non-industry and like, how geeky do I get in this conversation? Like I, I love to put a glass <laughs> yeah. of wine in front of someone, but then I'm also like, sometimes I know that they want me to talk about it. And sometimes I'm like, should I back off or do I dive in? Like I, I never really know how to play that game with people who don't, who I don't know speak the language. It's almost like not knowing whether or not you and I both speak Spanish. Like I don't, I don't want to speak at first. <laughs> yeah. No, but you know, it's interesting. Like when people just, don't you find that there's personalities in your life that will match up with yours and that sure. you know if you're expressing that like they want to learn more about it they want to kind of yeah and you pass it and you share it and then there's other people in your life who you know because of their family or their old friends they could care less <laughs> they're just like just give me whatever and they, they, they'd rather talk about it 
you're not going to spend your time really trying to educate, <laughs> educate them. No, I mean, I got, I got really good at reading people quickly at tables and I was a sommelier on the floor because I literally had 10 seconds to decide whether or not I needed to geek out or like back up because they were about to like get done and dirty under the table. Like I didn't know what the situation was yeah. and I had to assess it real fast. Right, right, right. There's nothing better as I'm going along and learning and stuff. There's nothing better than when you find someone that is excited to talk about it and will guide you through. Like there's this great wine mm-hmm. shop here in LA called 2020. It looks like um, like Raiders of the Lost Ark, like a big cold room filled with wine. Okay. Some very expensive stuff, some really like rare stuff. And then some just really great stuff for $20 from Spain and all these amazing places. And the, the guy that runs the shop w- loves, he was so excited. This this bottle, $16 from Spain, nobody knows about it. And he would just go off and it was like, oh, it was like finding like uh, this guide in a in a dark cave somewhere. It's like, come with me. <laughs> and really, he, he enjoyed it so much. And he knows he's selling real expensive bottles to people that can afford it. But he was so happy to show you the stuff that would blow your mind, that wouldn't break your bank. It, oh, it was the best. I will tell you, wine pros are are way more excited to sell you the diamond in the rough that's going to get you really excited than to make a big sale. Yeah. Right. Like, I, I don't think there's a sommelier that I know that is like, doesn't get more excited to sell the $20 Beaujolais to someone that's never had it before and blow their mind versus selling like a $3,000 Scream Eagle or whatever. Right, right. It's interesting. Have you ever found a, a wine that's thousands of dollars that you've tasted that was worth it? hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> really? There's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, that's a difficult notion. The, 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 is it worth it question? Because, you know, it's so subjective, obviously. And I mean, yeah, but I will say I've had, and Vanessa, I'm sure you have too. I've had some very incredible bottles of wine that were thousands of dollars that I thought were magnificent. Yeah. Do I have $5,000 to spend in a bottle of wine? Absolutely not. Am I glad someone else did? For sure. Right. Um, but I do think there are some very rare bottles of wine. And I will say that it's bottles, not particular wines. Like sometimes you just get really lucky with a specific bottle of wine. Like, you know, you could have 15 bottles of the same wine and that particular one, for whatever reason, is just showing beautifully. Right. And I think there are those rare instances in, in which that gem comes to life and that you know, those thousands of dollars were totally worth it. Now you may spend thousands more trying to get to that wine. So like, yeah, you know, I, I, it's hard. Like it's a, it's a, it's a game of disappointment sometimes when you get into that bracket. Yeah, no, I get it. I mean, I've had the experience where, uh, we've ordered, we were, where were we? Oh, we were in uh, Del Posto in New York, mm. mm-hmm. which is, you know, that the, the pricing of that place was built off of expense accounts from Wall Street. Yes. It's like a five times markup. Yeah. Yeah. It's not for, right. And uh, we were having this big dinner after a TV show and the host was like midway through the meal, ordered the most expensive bottle of wine that he had ever ordered. Wow. And, you know, it was a couple grand and it was like, Let's, I've never done it. Let's just see what it is. But you know what? It was so lost on us because we had been eating so much and drinking so much mid-meal. It was like, who knows what, <laughs> you know what I mean? At that point, <laughs> it was like the wrong time to try and kind of 
to kind of do it. It reminds me what you're describing, I feel like happens a lot, even at home or at dinner parties where like you've had a couple of glasses or you've been sharing a couple of bottles and all of a sudden you're like, let's go open that thing I've been saving for decades because it <laughs> seems like a great idea at the time. And the next day you're like, I don't really remember because we were already like I know. five bottles deep, you know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And that's what that I really had that during, uh, during the stay at home portion of our lives. I was like, wait a minute, I've got all these really nice bottles. This is the time to be drinking these. Yeah. Like when it's just my wife and I. I agree with that. And we're here. It's like, why at a party you're just going to like put it off? Like this is the moment. Like now, just hanging out on a Sunday. Yeah. Let's break open the one we've been waiting for. I'm so happy to hear you say that. Yeah. You can't take it with you, right? No. So yeah. now is the time. Oh, man. Yeah. And then I did, I did this uh, gig where I had to do some writing for this, for this guy and they were wanted to pay me. And it was, you know, it was, they needed some comedy stuff and it was, and I didn't really want to charge them, but I was like, oh, just pay me in wine. And they sent a couple cases of this great Barolo and this French wine, uh, Burgundy, a couple cases, like, and this is the beginning of pandemic. And I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to treat this like we got a case of Coke. <laughs> <laughs> or Mountain Dew. I'm like, we're going to drink this. Like, why have a big, why, why have an expensive car in the, in the driveway if you're not going to drive it? Let's, we're going to drive these. Yeah. And it, it really helped with the pandemic for sure. <laughs> Do you remember what some of the great wines that you opened with your wife during the pandemic were? Oh man. You know, I don't. Cause whenever I can't remember French names, where's my oh, phone? That is the tough part. Favely, Favely. Oh Yeah. Burgundy. Yeah. Yeah. Was it red or white? Red. Red. Beautiful, beautiful bottle, beautiful wine. So it was like light and not really not overly alcoholic. It wasn't knocking you on your butt, which was, you know, we were drinking a lot more during the early part of the pandemic. It was nice to have something that wasn't like kicking your butt. Uh, that was really good. Oh, I forget what the Barolo was though. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't remember. No, it's fine. I, you know, there's a thin line between Burgundy and Barolo, and I'm just glad that you're in both camps. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Is there a thin line? I think so. I mean, there's, you know, I think when you look at the the blind tasting grid, there's a lot of similarities and Vanessa being a literal master of blind tasting can probably speak to it more. But yeah, I think between Burgundy and Barolo, there are distinctions, but there's you know, oftentimes sommeliers will get caught up between those, you know, whether or not one is one and one is the other. Right. To look for the tannin, that nebbiolo tannin, that's the tell. Oh, yeah. 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 But something Amanda said earlier actually made me think of a, a question that I wanted to ask you, which Amanda, you were talking about how you had to learn how to read a table really fast and kind of figure out where they want to go. So, Tom, is it the same if you walk out on the stage? Like, can you tell right away? what the crowd is like, or does it take a little while to see uh, if they're really into it or if they're going to be a quieter group? You know, as soon as you walk in the building. Really? Literally. As soon as you walk in the building, you can feel the energy. It doesn't mean that you can't change it when you're up there. You can, you can manipulate the energy and change it, but I can walk in and just know, oh, this is going to be great. You can just feel this conversation. There's an you know, the whole thing about all of this, about the isolation that we've all been forced into for the last six months, mm -hmm. you're starting to discover how much we need each other and how much we, you know, the practical things intellectually that you need, you have. You have your food, you have your family, you have your home. 
but there's something about the energy of human beings that we need to be around and feed off of. And it's a very real thing that's hard to describe and hard to quantify, but I've been with my wife for 20 years. Love her to death. She's the most important person in the world. But during this time, I've spent all my time with her. I need to just walk through a crowded airport once in a while. <laughs> I need to be in a supermarket filled with people. Yeah. And it's the same thing when you go to perform that room, or I'm sure when you come up to a table, there's a vibe, there's an energy there. Mm -hmm. And those people are combining in some way that's creating this energy at this moment. Uh, it's a very, very real thing. Oh, how about this one? How about Telegraph? Oh, you Telegraph. Oh, I love you, Telegraph. Yes. That's, that's my favorite producer from Chateauneuf, yes. Oh, man, that is a, that is a, Amazing one. And we got married in 98 and we cracked open in 98 because it was our- Oh, the 98 Telegraph? I think I've actually had that one. Ooh, I have not had that vintage. Ooh, it's a good one. 98 holds up. That one was really yes. good. Yes. Nice. So did you have that recently? Was that during the, the pandemic or was that- Yeah, I've, I had that before. I had that before, but I definitely- um, Oh, here we go. Uh, Chateau uh, Clerk Malone. Oh, Bordeaux. You're fancy. Uh, nice. <laughs> Is that fancy? You have been drinking well. I know, yeah, I'm telling you. You have been drinking well. <laughs> I know, and I'm literally treating it like Budweiser. Good. No, I'm I like, love that. I, I'm all for a lack of reverence when it comes, you know, I think there's some certain circumstances where you should have reverence, but like, especially wine, which like, you know, walks into the room with like a very thick jacket of reverence. Like, I'm just take it off. Like, I'm, re I'm ready to sit down and like, have fun. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And look, this was, I didn't even, I didn't have to buy this wine. This was given to me for writing jokes. Yes. And then they, it shows up and it's like, well, this is good. There's no like that cherishing, you know, guilt about it. I hate to ask you the, if you preferred one over the other, but did you have a preference? Of these two here? Uh, no, like the Clerc Mion or the Telegraph or the, the Favely. <sighs> the Telegraph is so good. Mm. But why it's hard to answer is because I'm connected to Telegraph because I've read about it. Jim Harrison is this great writer. It was his favorite wine. Jim Harrison's my favorite. Oh, the best. My nickname is Clementine because that's what he used to call his wife. No, really? Yeah. Oh, I'm my a God. Huge Jim Harrison fan. Oh, man. Now we're going to be friends forever. <laughs> oh, I just love him so much. And yes. he loved Telegraph. He, mm -hmm. It meant a lot to him. So there's all of this tied up, all this reverence and love and the story and the research and the stuff. And then another bottle comes in and you're like, well, this is great too, this, but I don't, I can't connect to it. I don't know where it's really from. I don't know the people involved. I don't have someone I respect turning me on to it. So it's at the disadvantage of having to just stand on its own. Yeah. Right? No, I, I agree. There's an affection that you have for something where there's a, where the story is connected. And not to plug wine access, but exactly. the, that is the cool <laughs> thing about it is that these wines show up and they have the story and you can kind of like digest it a little bit. And that really, that means a lot. That really connects you mm -hmm. to it. You know, I have a love affair with this, with Telegraph and, uh, and, and Harrison loves the, um, Bandol. The Tempeh. The Bandols. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... And, and then the way he would talk about the eat, you know, he'd be in this mountain cabin eating mm -hmm. this, the, you know, 
the pigeons, the you know, the birds that he caught, <laughs> and and the gaminess and what that wine does to that food and that combination, it's really great. His poetry is really great to read to just have around, like when you're in between reading and you you don't have the especially this happened again during during the choir, as the kids call it. Uh, when you can't really, when you couldn't really, when you couldn't really dial in like a, a whole novel cause you're scatterbrained about <laughs> the world coming to an end. Poetry was a good place to go. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He's, he's the best. Yeah. I'm so glad you like the wine access stories though, Tom. Thanks for I do mentioning that. I really do. Again, I don't know if it's the writing thing or if it's the wine thing or it's probably a combination of the two, but when and you can just kind of like slow down and really kind of learn a little bit about it and see what other people are saying and see where it's coming from. You know, like I said, like you never want that feeling like you're being duped. Of course. And it's like, oh, you thought you found like some small producer. And it's like, no, they're really owned by this gigantic corporation and they're cranking this thing. Oh, it just leaves you feeling a little hollow. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I, this is, well, I hope that it's especially now during the choir. I just learned that. Yeah, the choir. I feel so cool not learning the core that um, I think things like, yeah, like reading in these stories about wine and taking on places. And, you know, since we're all kind of stuck and not able to to travel like we used to, I hope it kind of takes people on a journey and makes them feel like they're out and about again and really enjoying life. Are you starting to like fantasize about where you'll go first? Oh, yeah. Actually, it's Sicily. It's funny since oh, we're yeah? drinking a Sicilian wine. It's, it's actually, I've, I've been to Italy uh, many times, but I've never been to Sicily. And it's it's a place that I, both for the wine, but for the culture. And just because I've heard so many amazing stories from people who visited. Yeah. It's top of my list for sure. Me too. That's my next one. I've never been either. Wow. Yeah. And your family's from there. I know. Let's organize a trip. I was going to say, let's take this show on the road and do it. Yeah, come on. Let's go. We've got the bread. We've got the wine. Let's do it. We can. Yeah, I know people at Netflix. Let's go. Let's film it. (laughs) Yeah, let's go. Oh, it'd be so great. What is the story with Sicilian wines? I mean, are they becoming more fashionable now or are they getting better at what they were doing? What's the story? I think like wines from sort of everywhere in the world, the quality is has come leaps and bounds, you know? Um, But I think there's what I think has attracted a lot of people. And I think Psalms too. Did you, are you hearing my cat? I think it's a monkey. (laughs) It's my cat. She actually was in my, has been in my lap for half of this podcast. (laughs) She she left, but she, um, she was, anyway. She's not happy about what you're saying about Sicilian wines. (laughs) To answer your question. About Sicilian wine. Um, yeah. I think what's really captured people is it does have that beautiful acidity that makes it really, really food friendly. Right. Um, they tend to be great values. It's really hard to spend a lot of money. Yeah. Um, and you can still drink really well. Uh, but I think in the last, um, definitely the last year, maybe last couple of years, there's been this sort of fascination with island wines. Mm-hmm. Um and, uh, you know, if you look like at like, the Canary Islands, like the Canary Islands, exactly like Sardinia and Sicily. And so I think it's sort of part of that sort of exploration that for whatever reason, people are starting to be really excited about. Ah, interesting. And what is volcanic? What is volcanic soil do to a wine? I mean, there. so there, it's funny in the wine world, this, this word minerality has almost become this, like some people are like, oh, don't talk about that. It's not a thing. Uh, because the vines don't actually like pick up minerals from the soil and put it in your glass, right? But there is something distinctly smoky about wines from from Sicily right. and they all are growing in this volcanic soil. It's the same, you know, some things are distinctly chalky from Champagne, right. which has chalky soils. And I get it in the glass. I'm like, I don't, I, I understand that like 
it's literally not dumping it in your glass, but but it's here. I use minerality all the time. I'm not afraid to still use that word because there are certain markers for region that are that are distinctly mineral. Interesting. Yeah. And to go back to what you were saying earlier about, you know, sort of this homogenization of, of California wines and, you know, Vanessa and I both live in Napa Valley. And I think there is that region in particular has gone through a lot of iterations of styles and and what's being produced. And certainly there there does exist a lot of um, a lot of wines that lack a certain sense of place. But I think what you love so much about these European regions isn't just the complexity and the subtlety. It's the sense of place. It's the terroir. It's the things that are sort of the the things that we can't necessarily describe other than to assign a place to the thing that we're drinking in our glass. Um, right. And so, it, you know, we don't know what the causality is. We don't know why Champagne and Chablis are a little bit more chalky. And we don't know why Sicilian reds have more of a volcanic quality. We just know that they represent a sense of place when they're done in a, in a more uh, transparent manner. Right, right. When you have a, like a really great California wine, Mm-hmm. Like one of the great bottles we had during the choir was uh, Silver Oak. Mm, mm-hmm. it, was, it was just this great, this great night. You know, just like that first sip and all of a sudden you just feel four people just start to rise up. Like <laughs> yeah. It just it changes everybody's spirit immediately. And that came from there. Like what, what is the, what's the sense of place you think you get when you drink the, the really good California? Well, it depends where it's coming from. I mean, if it's, you know, silver. If it's like the Napa, Sonoma. Yeah, like even within Napa, there's little, there's pockets of of Napa Valley that have a specific terroir. Like I think a great example is Philippe Tongi, which is a small producer up on Spring Mountain. And his little pocket of vineyard is very small. It's at a moderate elevation of probably 900 to 1,000 feet. But where it sits, it's very green. You know, it's very wet. There's a lot of eucalyptus trees and like redwoods that kind of around it. And and these wines, I mean, the grapes are being harvested for sure on the early side. I don't think he's ever picked past like September 20th. So, you know, certainly at a lower degrees bricks, which often there's many schools of thought on, on why wines maybe have a sense of place or do not. But there is something to be said about picking a little bit early to show to show slightly more of the terroir that exists there because once you start getting into to sugar territory which happens as the grapes ripen sometimes those things can get a little bit obfuscated but some someone like Philippe Tongi I think it shows a sense of place and it's very clear that there is it's spring mountain it's a little bit green it's a little bit a little less ripe um, mm-hmm. and there is sort of like a, a minerality to it so you know, even within Napa Valley, it's, you know, it's only five miles wide and 30 miles north and south uh, long, but you can have, you know, very, very distinct wines that have a sense of place. And certainly Philippe Tongi's wines are going to be very different from that of Silver Oak, which is, you know, the Silver Oak Napa Valley is coming from a few different places in Napa Valley, but there is still, it's mostly valley floor fruits or there is a little bit more ripeness and certainly style plays a factor with regard to the oak treatment because they use a distinct oak. But there is a, a distinction in between there that isn't just what you think of when you think of Napa Valley, huge, big, ripe. Um, and I worked with, an, with a wine list that was entirely Napa Valley. So it was my job to find the distinctions between, I don't know, a thousand Napa Valley Cabernets. Like, how do you discern between them all? Yeah, yeah. I like that you mentioned Silver Oak, though, because they're such an icon. And I, I think what's interesting about them is... They're kind of so, um, people think like, oh, they're so traditional. They've been around so long, you know, 
They're actually so cutting edge on terms of what they're doing in the vineyard. They use some of the most advanced oh, yeah. technology in terms of like I agree. canopy management, water management. Um, they're all LEED certified. So, you know, very sustainable. Everything they're doing is really, really thoughtful in terms of the environment and energy and all that. So it's 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 a cool story to tell. There's someone that we work with a lot at, at Wine Access and, and have become really, really good friends of ours. Um, so it's it's a fun story. Mm-hmm. That's cool. And it's still family owned. I think a lot of people forget that they think that it's so big that it's corporate, but it's actually not. It's still the, the family, the Duncans that, yeah. um, you know, things have changed, obviously, generation, generation, but it's still family owned and operated into Vanessa's point. They're still really trying to iterate and grow with the times. And they're even ahead of the times on a lot of things, especially I think I love their story of the, of why they're continuing to use American oak. Obviously, it's their signature, but also like it's less of a carbon footprint because obviously it's not traveling as far and like. American oak is apparently a little little less harsh in the environment than French oak is. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but somebody told me that. You know, look, anybody that is kind of like always searching and going forward, look, I like Starbucks. I like I like I like getting a nice pike, and I've had so many great wines from those places. So it's really nice to hear that Silver Oak is like that, because you don't want to feel like oh, you don't want to apologize because you're enjoying something. One of the great bottles I had this over the last two years, I was doing a corporate gig in. Uh, the Cayman Islands. Nice. And there was this great restaurant that had this like massive wine cellar. And the guy who hired me brought me in early. And we had like, he loves wine too. My my friend, uh, Brian Mealy, who's just this great guy. We had both graduated high school in 86. So we had this 86 Taganello, which, you know. T- oh, ting- uh, T-I-G-N-A. Yeah. Yeah. How do you pronounce it? Yeah. Tinganello. Tiganello. You know, they're they're kind of like a big producer, right? That wine was insanely good. I mean, blew us away. We were both just like floating over the island halfway through the <laughs> through the bottle. It was just right? I mean, it was so good and to say like just because they're a big producer you you're not going to be into it is is wrong. Well, you've got a semi-empty glass on almost almost there. So is the semi-empty one the Etna Rosso and the other one's the Barolo? Is that what's yeah. Is that what the tell is at this point? That is the tell. Yeah. You can always tell which wine a person enjoyed, obviously, by how much is in the glass. I know. You're exactly <laughs> right. It's the same thing with cooking, isn't it? Like when you cook for people. Yes. And you're like, <laughs> yes, if you have to ask and there's still food on the plate, it's like, if you just made something for them and it's all gone <laughs> yeah, and it just disappears, yeah. you're like, all right, I nailed it tonight. <laughs> I ate it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, this was good. I really like this. Yeah, so you'll you'll go back to Sicily and try more. Yeah, absolutely. And or maybe the three of us will do it in Sicily. Oh. When we do our Netflix special. Man, we're on to something. Netflix, I'm ready. <laughs> bag is packed. I'm an easy traveler. My passport is ready. I am good. I don't have COVID, so I'm good. Oh, I know. Let's go. <laughs> When's this going to be over? <laughs> I don't know. Are you are you back to touring? Are you uh, in front of a crowd? A little bit. I've done a couple clubs. Clubs are the only thing that can open because they have a smaller capacity. So they can do like half capacity and space people out. Theaters, it's going to be a while. Mm -hmm. But I went to Salt Lake City. I went to Portland, Oregon. And then through the fall, I have probably four clubs in total between now and the end of the year. And which is enough. That's good. I'll go. If it's places that are responsible and doing it the right way, uh, I'm just, oh, Man, you guys know you travel. I went to Portland, you know, this very quiet airport, and I checked into the hotel at like eleven in the morning. I had an early flight, and you know, when you travel, that's always 
that's going to be your battle. Like, is my room going to be ready? Can I? Right. Oh, we're sorry, Mr. Papa. Four o'clock is our check-in. I know, but just give yes. me a room. <laughs> this was like, welcome, Mr. Papa. Have your pick. You're the only one here. <laughs> <laughs> so is are you opening your show a different way? Because I I know it's like, look at you. You got dressed. You left the house. You didn't cancel on your friends. Is it now it's like people are so excited to be there? That- yeah. Now I start off going, I can't believe we're here. I didn't, I didn't think we'd ever see each other again. We're doing it. Look at us. <laughs> look at us. Is that the title yeah. of your next special? Yeah. Look at us. <laughs> Look at us. <laughs> I thought I'd never see you again. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, my God. It really was. It was so cathartic. It was like, felt so good for me to be up there. They were so happy. I don't know who got more out of the evening, myself or the audience. It was just, <laughs> just so happy to be doing it. God. Will you go the drive-in route like your colleague, Brooke Kreischer? No, not going to do it. (laughs) I have more and more of my friends are doing it. Gaffigan's doing it too. And I'm just like, I can't perform for cars. I can't, (laughs) can't do it. (laughs) Although, Did you hear what happened in in my hometown of Philadelphia? No. So they said, they told everyone that they can't get out of their cars. They couldn't open the doors or something. So Philadelphia, in true Philadelphia fashion, they rolled down their windows and crawled on top of, they didn't never open the doors, but they crawled on top of their cars so that they could be outside. It's <laughs> pretty crafty, actually. Yeah. Oh, man. Out of respect, you know. <laughs> Philly's great. I think I was one of the first places we did the Food Network show was Philly. You just love how these different places just are emerging and changing and people are so much more conscious. It's just more thoughtful. And I think that's kind of the, the similar thing with the wine and it is with the, the bread baking. It's dialing in, try and eat healthier. It's just literally a, about being more thoughtful, not just shoving something into your face, but just taking a little more time to think about it with all those things. It's just so much more enjoyable. Yeah. Although I will say I do love a good Pop-Tart because I saw you and someone talking about Pop-Tarts and I have to tell you, I watched Jerry Seinfeld special when it came out <laughs> a couple months ago and he talks about Pop-Tarts and the, the next thing I did the following day was get two things of Pop-Tarts because I was like, I haven't had a Pop-Tart in forever. These are delicious. <laughs> I know. I w- <laughs> yeah. I had a guest on my podcast, Open Mike Eagle. He's this great yes. guy yes. and he hates Pop-Tarts. He just went off about how he can't stand <laughs> Pop-Tarts, that they're, they're, they're overrated. He was just couldn't... Uh, and I, I didn't challenge him on it because we were wrapping up the podcast, but he's so wrong. <laughs> the oh, best. I'm so glad. I was like, well, you know, maybe it's one thing that Tom and I just won't agree on. It's fine. <laughs> no, I actually feel bad about it. I should have defended the Pop-Tart, but I, I was being kind to my guest. <laughs> <laughs> I think it would be fun to do a wine pairing with different dessert wines and Pop-Tarts. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, let's do it. I don't great. know, Vanessa looks skeptical. You look skeptical. Yeah, no, I'm thinking it through. I'm actually thinking, I'm trying to think. <laughs> I was like, Tokai. Um, yeah. I'm thinking this through. If she disagreed. She'd be like, oh yeah, great. That's, we're never going to do that. That sounds great. <laughs> no, no, I'm like, I'm, th- I'm really thinking about it. I'm like, not poured. We can't do anything tannic, right? Oh, maybe Madeira. Yes, a little PX. Yeah. <laughs> I like you guys. Sherry. Yeah, we could do Sherry. <laughs> like I say, any anytime you get a chance to remove reverence from wine, we're like very into it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but people feel normal about it. Yeah. Well, we're getting down to the last sips of the wine. And uh, are there things coming up for you that we should know about? Oh, man. 
I've got um well I've got my Sirius XM show that's on every day on the Netflix Netflix is a joke. Yeah, Netflix is a joke channel. Uh, it's what a joke with Papa and Fortune. We do that every day, which has really been fun. It's really been cool because the guests we can get during this has been just great. Oh yeah, I'm sure. Like people are home. It's like how do they say no? <laughs> and uh, my Netflix special is out there. My book, You're Doing Great, Another Reason to Stay Alive, is out. Great. Which is doing really well. So we're really aptly timed on your on your part, you know, coming out in January when it did really got. Yeah, me yeah, exactly. A little optimism <laughs> never hurts. A little comedy. It's a little less cynical. Why not? And that's pretty much it. And the podcast Breaking Bread with Tom Papa. You've got to drink more wine on that podcast, though. I feel like there is a lack of juice. And if we can fix that in any way. I know. Well, you know, what the, the interesting thing and we're in studio, I built this great space that looks like a Italian restaurant, Ooh. classic old school Italian. And we can sit and actually break bread. That was the whole concept. And then the pandemic hit and we're doing it over Zoom. <laughs> it's such a bummer. You're like, watch me eat this bread. Yeah. So, yeah, no, the whole idea is to sit and open wine and share stories. And that's that's the whole heart of the show. So, well, I look forward to when that happens. And in the meantime, I'll, I'm still listening because they're great podcasts and they're really fun. I love, I love that your first guest was Tom Segura. As soon as I saw that it was Tom, I was like, well, Tom and Tom, I'm hooked. Yeah, no, (laughs) it's great. There's so many people I want to talk to too. And the the real trick with it is there's so many people I want to talk to that are, that people like, we've got people like Bill Burr and Tom Segura and, and I love them and they're comedians, but I also, the geeky bread part of me wants to just go talk to Kate's Bread in, o- in Ojai, yes. you know, or just talk to, I went and did Ken Forkish in Portland. And it's like, I really want to talk to bakers even more than I do comedians, but they don't have as many Twitter followers. <laughs> well, Nancy Silverton does. She's got quite a few. Yeah, she's a rock star. I'm going to do Andy Caden, who does uh, Bub and Grandma's. He provides the bread for Moza now. Like he, oh. he's a rock star. I just feel like... I'm just going to do whatever really turns me on and the things I really just enjoy and want to talk to and let it rip. Well, you've clearly found a lane and I'm happy that you're there because I love comedy and I love food. Oh, that's good. So to have the two together is just a match made in heaven for me. Awesome. Awesome. I am now even more thrilled to hear that you're a Jim Harrison fan. That just warms my soul. Oh, man. I'm going to find his first book and you find the autobiography. I will. I will. I will. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and enjoy the rest of your wine. I hope you bring it home to your wife and enjoy it for the rest of the evening and let us know if we can uh, fix any sort of cravings that you have in the wine department. Oh, you guys are the best. Well, I am still laughing. Let's talk about last drops. What say you, Vanessa? What were some of your takeaways? Well, he really um, is very able to describe what he likes, which is really exciting because I love when people outside of the wine industry have that confidence and aren't afraid to describe things. Mm -hmm. So I loved that. Um, Obviously, I loved hearing all his stories about baking and his time as a comedian. But I think what I'm really excited about is I'm pretty sure we just scored a trip to Sicily that somebody's going to pay for. (laughs) I don't know who. (laughs) I think you're spot on. I think we're all going to Sicily. We're going to drink some wine. I'm finally going to get to meet Ariana Okipinzi, which I've been dying to do for forever. And more importantly, I got to talk to truly one of my favorite comedians on the planet. And I am so excited that he also has a love of Jim Harrison. You know, they say like, don't meet your heroes, but when you meet someone like Tom Papa, even virtually, and he loves wine and he's a comedian and he loves Jim Harrison, I mean, I could run around the room and jump for joy and like drink all the wine right now because I'm so excited. Oh, you guys like really bonded over that. It was very special. We did. Yes. <laughs> 
I, you know this, I am a huge Jim Harrison fan. So much of what I do is based on not his philosophies, but like I've read a lot of his writings and I really, I've always felt like a sort of connection to him. And so I think the people that also feel that way are just naturally going to be kindred spirits. So it was so exciting to learn that someone that I truly admire in a totally different sector was also feeling the way that I was. So between Cicely and Jim Harrison, I am sold on Tom Papa. It sounds like we've got to get him some View Telegraph like stat because that is clearly something that he is very into. No surprise. That is happening. Yes. Yes. Another reason why I adore that man. Yes. (laughs) Well, I think I am really excited to uh, hopefully talk to him again and meet him instantly. And in the meantime, I guess we can finish our literal last drops as we end this podcast. So bottoms up. Let's finish the wine. All right. Well, cheers. Cheers. Cheers.